Welcome to the International Schools Podcast. I'm your co-host, John. Uh, Dan will join us uh, within the episode. Uh, and uh, we're just excited because we're kind of talking about a topic that I think myself and Dan and something that we've never really covered in the podcast. And I think it's something that's way overdue. It's this idea of child safeguarding. If you think of every one of us that is in the context of an international school, be it a school leader, an employee of a school, an educator, we're working with children and children are very uh, special type of human beings. They require a lot of empathy. They require a lot of nurturing. They require a lot of patience. They also require a lot of engagement. They also want to have the agency and all these things come into play. And unfortunately, as many of you, I'm sure, read in the press, this idea of child safeguarding is still an unfortunate issue where there are places in the world where kids are just not safe. And we've had the unfortunate situation as an international school community to have a couple events in the last 10 years that really highlighted the importance of engaging as school leaders, as educators in school communities to really take on the responsibility and understand the nuances of what does it mean to have safeguarding policies within the school and what are we doing to structure the systems and also the behaviors, the dispositions, the messages we're sending out and how we're ensuring we're supporting children so when they walk into school, they feel safe, they feel excited and they can really kind of amplify their potential in different ways through activities and learning. And today I have the privilege of having uh, Matt Harris. And I've had uh, I've known Matt for quite a few years. He was in the IT world as an IT director. But in the last few years, he's been doing some phenomenal work in this area with an organization called ChildSafeguarding.com. Matt is the co-founder and CEO of ChildSafeguarding.com. Guarding.com. And I just want to welcome you, Matt. Thank you so much for taking the time and joining us on this topic. Uh, it's a real honor, John. I appreciate you, you having me on and talking about this really critical topic that affects every school in every country worldwide. So again, thank you. So tell me the word child safeguarding. Before the podcast, we were just kind of talking to each other and I said, oh, child safety. And then Matt said, hold on here we need to make sure we're using the correct term to kind of encompass the topic that we're going to engage with. And it's, of course, safeguarding. Thank you for correcting me. And then maybe tell us a bit about that word child safety and safeguarding, the difference and what educators maybe need to understand. Yeah, absolutely. And I, I think there's a lot of context to this, not only in the basis of us being international school I don't know, <clears throat> longtime employees and people that have been citizens of that world, but also where we come from. So I, I'm American and we talk about this notion of child safety or health and safety or safeguarding in a little bit different way. But the international term is safeguarding. And the idea of safeguarding is protecting children from um, severe forms of, of um, harm and danger, such as abuse. And that actually is a, a subset called child protection, which, we'll, which I'll, I'll talk about in a minute. But then also looking at wellness, looking at other safety elements. But when you just say child safety, 
oftentimes that's more of a referral to health and safety procedures that we also have at a lot of our schools. So, so things like fire extinguishers and fire drills and, um, you know, railings on, uh, on stairwells and stuff like that. But the major topic with international schools, and you alluded to it, to those two major incidents that have happened in the last 10 years, have really made a larger push towards this focus on child abuse prevention, child protection. So if you're going to look it up, look up safeguarding and child protection. And child protection is the protection of children from severe forms of harm and danger, such as abuse. Um, those two incidents that you mentioned are, are really bellwether events within the international community. And we won't go into depth of the details on those. I think people can look that up if they want to. But what those two incidents did um, was really shine a light on us being kind of third culture elements within these organizations, right? Where we're, we're kind of foreigners to, to a lot of these countries. And um, there's a culture and a context related to those, those communities around child abuse prevention. And we, we just, as a community, weren't strong enough in those areas. And so um, based on those two incidents, there was a wonderful organization of, of um, educators that got together to form the International Task Force for Child Protection. And they really have shined a light on this notion of safeguarding child protection across schools around the world. They, they, do, they do represent people around the world. They're connected to Interpol. They're connected to other organizations. And with that, you now see it, it's become a topic for every single conversation around leadership and accreditation and the ethos of schools. You can't go to a conference without talking about safeguarding now related to international schools. Thank you for that clarification. I think it's so helpful because so often we use terms and we lock into them and we don't realize actually it's not really reflecting what the meaning is. So this was really helpful. Tell me, we, we're not going to talk about the two incidents in the details, but there were two significant incidents of severe child abuse or misinterpretation. And the, the gamut, we're not going to go into the editorials or anything. But I'm wondering, were we complacent before? Or is this something now we understand is more important? What was happening before than an organization like yours came around? And there are other organizations around the world. You, yeah, you really work in the international sphere. But I'm wondering, was there complacency? Were, was it also kind of the whole Me Too, uh, Black Lives Matter, this kind of awareness, and also LGBTQ, DEIJ? Suddenly, all these different narratives have come to the forefront and really told us we need to wake up. We need to really reflect on our behavior. Do you think is was that part of it, or was it we were just comfortable ignoring it? I don't think it's comfortable ignoring it. I think actually your um, your analogy with with those those critical social movements is is apt, because we have always known that it is our central responsibility of all schools to focus on child abuse prevention, but maybe the light wasn't shine it wasn't shining bright enough on that particular focal point, right? And and if you look at kind of the responsibilities of a school, right? We 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 need to protect children. They need to be safe. Um, that's that's kind of like a baseline element of the the Maslow's hierarchy of need when it comes to a school, and yet I don't know if if I would go as far as saying that we we maybe took it for granted, but we weren't we weren't focusing on it enough, and then when these severe incidents came, we realized we needed to amp it up, similar to Me Too and Black Lives Matter and those other very important movements, those have been there, but we just haven't been focusing the correct amount of attention. And once we did start shining lights onto safeguarding in schools around the world, a lot of revelations came in. And that is that 
while we we knew it is important and in a lot of um, a lot of countries where our teachers come from, specifically the UK, um, parts of Europe, um, Australia, this notion of safeguarding is is a major part of of the of the lexicon of education in those countries. It wasn't it wasn't as well defined within international schools from a um, from a strategic standpoint and from an operational standpoint. And so this task force really pushed that forward. And the accrediting agencies have really pushed it forward to say, this needs to be part of your communication. It needs to be part of, of what you're focusing on strategically as a school to ensure that every child within your community is safe. And then we need to look at the operations specifically of what that entails, whether it's policies or personnel or what we do is, is training. We train everybody to ensure they understand their roles and they know what child protection is. So this idea that... Um, it has been there. Yes, it absolutely has. But now it's on the forefront. It is a point of discussion because it's an existential requirement for all of us. And, and the things that we say to people when we talk about safeguarding and child protection is that really schools have, have three obligations. There's a moral obligation to protect children, as, as you can imagine, right? I mean, I think you agree. There is a legal obligation. And that legal obligation can be quite broad and quite diverse. You know, the, the legal obligations in Singapore, where I'm from, or parts of Europe where you are, John, or South America, they're different. Every law is different. Um, and, but there are obligations. And almost every, every country has a, has a legal framework around child protection that the schools need to abide to. Further, every school that goes through accreditation will also need to abide by some sort of standards-based approach. And then the third obligation is there's a practical obligation. You have to put those things in place. You have to have a designated safeguarding lead. You have to have a policy. You have to do safer recruitment. All these words that we've heard about, you have to address them as a practical element of the operations of the school to ensure that the children are, are in the safest position possible by being within your community. Yeah. So it's there. We're just getting a lot better at focusing on it across the board. Do you think the nature of international schools, and we talked a bit about this, you know, international schools often are set in countries and cultures that most of the population, be it the educators or the leadership team, or even the students and parents that come are maybe not locals and they're expats or third culture uh, community. Do you think is because it was a bit gray? So imagine I'm in this country and I'm in international school and the laws might not be really highlighted as child uh, safeguarding laws. And then I feel like, well, if the laws aren't there, then maybe I don't have to abide by it. Because what I'm hearing is through this organization and this task force, basically the decision was it doesn't matter what the laws of the country are. As a school, you're going to play by these rules. Right. Yeah. So I think there's a lot of nuance to that because, you know, international schools, as you said, tend to be these islands within a foreign land. Right. And so we bring in our, our views, our biases, our experiences into those organizations that may or may not match with what, what is required within the country in which they live. And so when we talk with schools about this notion of kind of bridging that gap, we, we, we focus kind of on four what we call four C's. So countries, number one, you, you have to know what the legal requirements are for your country, right? And that will supersede your accreditation requirements or, or what else, because you are a member of that, um, of that country. Number two, we say culture, you know, what is the culture of your, com of your community, of, of, you know, the, the people that are working and living in the area, you know, because it will be different things that, 
that people do and say in China are different than they are in India than, than they are in France, you know? So understanding those cultural elements is also critical to make sure that you're doing best for child protection safeguarding. The next is um, the community you serve. You know, I mean, the, the school that my children go to have a different community aspect to it than, than the one that you work at, John, right? So we need to understand why we're doing, who we're serving within this, this child protection realm and how those fit in within the local context. And then finally is this notion of context. What kind of school are you? Are you a boarding school? Are you um, a highly academic school? Are you a community school? You know, every one of them has, a, has an ethos. And so understanding those four C's best bridge the gap between the fact that we are international um, and that we're working in these local contexts. And actually it is that exact reason why I got into this. So I was working at a school in Jakarta and when we hear Jakarta and we hear child protection, you can go search it, that they do match. And these incidents are related to things that were in Jakarta. And so I got a kind of a, a, a firsthand look at how this notion of safeguarding was evolving in international schools. And as we were doing that, um, we had trainers come in, right? This notion of making sure that everybody was trained, but they were being trained with a Western mindset and Western ideals and Western approaches. And so I remember talking to... Um, our content expert, and, and he's become a great friend of mine, Chris Gould. Um, he's a child protection expert. He was involved in kind of helping out those incidents as well. And I said, Chris, this is great, but what are we doing for the 400 Indonesian speaking local staff? And he said, well, we're, we're not really hitting their needs. And so as you're doing this training and you're tying to the context, we said, we need to meet, we need to meet their needs. And so when we first built childsafeguarding.com, we built it for that learner in mind. So our system is accessible by anybody. It's e-learning. So it takes on this, this IT thing, as we were talking about, John. And then we made it multilingual. So we present our training in all of these languages to ensure that we're taking the content to the learner and, and meeting their needs, rather than them breaking free of their country and their culture and their community to meet kind of our Western approaches of child protection. And that's a critical element too, right? I mean, you're in these countries. You need to be a partner within that, within the entire community. And so the training has to do that. And that's, that's what we do is to help those, those organizations meet that kind of partnership requirement, as it were, by providing training that meets the needs of the local staff while ensuring it matches the quality that we, we require as international schools. That's, that's so interesting because so often when you think of professional development uh, programs and different menus that are served, uh, for you know professional growth, so often they're targeted on the educators and the expat community, and so often the local staff might get very little professional development, or it's anticipated it might not be important because of their role is not in the classroom, etc. I just think that's so powerful, and also, you know, it, it, throughout the program and the podcast, we always talk about cultural context and understanding that sometimes the what I'm going to call the anglophone. Western-centric mindset and perception doesn't always sit or fit or is understood clearly. And what I'm hearing loud and clear is you, you know, you're in this room and you're suddenly saying, wow, there are 400 people here. They're not, not being addressed or that even know that this is going on. So one thing which is really interesting, and I do 
uh, highlight that uh, Matt has been generous and done the show notes. Many of our listeners are familiar with show notes. Go there. There's a lot there for you to dig in, but go to his website. One of the things is that you have an e-learning platform, but you make it multilingual and your target audience is not what I would call your international school expat educator. They're part of your target, but it's much broader. Talk to us a bit about how do you have to deliver learning maybe differently in such a context? Yeah, and you you hit that key word, didn't you, John? Like that notion of culture. And this is the number one question we get across the board. So people are always very curious about the language and the accessibility and the pricing and all of those sorts of things and whether it meets international standards. Um, and we've addressed all that. But the big question is, what do you do about culture? Because we, we just talked about it, right? What The way that children are reared in China versus India versus France versus Peru is totally different. And certain elements that um, certain activities or, or ways of interacting with children just are not acceptable at our schools. So how do you account for that when you're doing a training for China and India and France and Peru? And what we do is we ignore the culture. And this sounds really counterintuitive, I know, but it, it is quite effective because the culture that we tie to is the culture of the school. So you are an employee of the school, you're a volunteer, you're a parent, whatever that is. And it is our school ethos that we will not be a cause of abuse for the children. We will not harm them. We will not be alone with them. And so we take that cultural element that is very much tied to the local community and say, within this space of being an educational institution, there are certain norms and requirements. And we say that from like a, an outside contextual view of, you know, we, we, children should not be abused within our culture. But then we also push it directly on the learners and we give them a set of behavioral and attitudinal standards. And we say, do not be alone with the children. Do not go into the wrong toilet. And so they're hearing that we respect very much where you come from, your culture and your language are central to what we're offering, but there are certain requirements around behavior and expectations around the children that transcend where you are geographically or culturally. And that's critical so that no matter where a child goes within your international school or to another one, they get the same message or that the people around them are getting the same message that there's a standard of how we treat children and how we act around them and how we report if we have any concerns that that child might be in danger. And so it, it is, it's a fine line to toe, but it's been incredibly effective. And we've had wonderful feedback from schools that really like us saying this message in Burmese or, you know, in Afrikaans. We're able to say it in mother tongue and then tie that to not only the course, which is really valuable, but we're handing out certificates in those languages. And when we've talked to learners, this has just been fascinating to me. The learners come back to us and say, I know this is important. I, I appreciate the time. But the fact that the school made an effort to give me a certification and a course in my language really shows me respect and shows that I'm a part of this community. So it's just oh, it's yeah. kind of a win-win all the way around, right? That, that the cultures yeah. are respected, but we're, we're hitting these international norms and standards. And I think, as you said, it's counterintuitive or, it, you know, the idea that you're ignoring the local culture, but you're at the same time not you're celebrating it because you're delivering the language that the people speak, whatever. It might, and we're just using Afrikaans as an example of Burmese and then the certificate, because I would say from my experience, having worked in Asia and Africa and now Europe, often the professional development is delivered in language, which is the English language. That's kind of the, the default language for many international schools. And I think that is just really powerful, the message. 
do you really look at the mission and the values and the learning principles? How important is that in framing that conversation? Because every school has certain uh, missions and philosophies and values that they uh, believe in and that they push out and that are part Mm -hmm. of the community. How important is that for you as your frame of reference more than the values of what the country might be in? Yeah, we we spent a lot of time doing that as we um, as we first built out the courses. So we referenced every accreditation accreditation standard we can find, um, international laws. We did a lot of um, review of the task force and their materials, and then we actually tested a proof of concept version with I don't know half a dozen to a dozen um, schools to make sure that what we were saying wouldn't be a counter message to the things that they that they focus on. And, you know, it's not perfect. There are certain religious institutions that would prefer that we had references to, to some of, of their specific language. Um, but for the most part, we are saying things that, that people want to have said. And we are saying things that aligns with the, um, the task force and how, the, and how they're approaching everybody having a role in child protection and reporting concerns and behaving appropriately. And so those universals, tend to be universal. And I know we, we never, you know, you never say never and you never say always, but we have found that our messages tend on the whole, on the supermajority, to align to those section A of the accreditation, you know, the mission and vision and ethos and, and shared values. We, we align to everyone that I've seen. And if you think about it, you know, we're talking about protecting children at that baseline level from the greatest forms of harm and danger. I really can't see a school that would say, I don't know if we really want to do that. <laughs> you know, it's just, it's, it's not in the, it's not in the DNA of why we got into education. Yeah. But where the challenge lies, and, and, and I think this is an important point, is that we got into education not to focus on child abuse. So we've not only had to, de- to kind of focus on these, these things that align to these universal beliefs and understanding of values, but we've had to do it in a way that doesn't draw focus away from the primary reason many of us got into teaching, and that is to, yeah. to help children learn. So we've tried to make it very accessible. We've tried to be very respectful of the teachers and now the parents. We have a, a parent tutorial that just came out to meet the needs of their involvement and engagement within this topic in a way where they can get those core messages, get their certificates, come back to us later, but not get in the way of you know the things they need to do in the classroom unless you need to get in the way to protect a child, right? So there's a balancing act there too. And and so far, I think we've been doing pretty good. So I'm a school and I have an accreditation and they say, oh, your child, your safeguarding policies are not that strong. This is an area that you need to work on. So then I contact you and tell us a bit about what kind of curriculum, you know, what does safeguarding curriculum look like, especially mm-hmm. that you're doing it on the e-learning platform. So we're talking about, you know, these things being online. Is, is it asynchronous, synchronous? Maybe take us through some of that journey of how you're delivering the learning and what are kind of the safeguarding essentials. Right. Yeah, absolutely. So um, you've mentioned a couple things there. So I'm going to address them bit by bit, if that's okay. So we focus primarily on the training aspect of child protection and safeguarding. Now, we have a document, and I think I might have shared it in the show notes. And if not, I'll make sure I add it later. And it's this notion of of the overview, because there are numerous areas that that a school needs to consider when they they do their child protection programs, the personnel, 
the child, the child safeguarding policy, like you mentioned, resourcing, um, other things like that. And so what we do is that we kind of help you check one box, and that is the, the training one by providing universal baseline training in child protection to meet the needs of every member of the community. But because we are dealing with such a diverse group, I mean, we're talking everybody from the contracted bus driver with an outside service to the parent volunteer that comes in to help in the preschool to the, you know, the, the PE teacher that works across seven different grades to now the parent that only comes to back to school night every two years, right? That's who we're trying to cover. And one of them is uh, a locally uh, a Spanish-speaking um, local teacher. Um, one's English, one's got a French background, and then let's say the parents are Korean, right? There's a lot of diversity of what we need to address. And so e-learning has provided us the opportunity to provide baseline training that meets the, the needs of those people, all of them, in a way where they can engage at the level that works best for them. So we, um, we created our own platform. I'll Tell you a little anecdote for that in a minute um, that allows for universal access for anybody. So it works on any device and any time on any internet connection. Um, it is asynchronous learning. So it's individualized learning that you can go through on your own at your own pace, pause and resume. And you can do it in whatever languages that we have available that meet your needs. How many uh, languages do you do this in? Uh, as of today, um, our awareness course. So that's the one for support staff is available in 37 languages. Wow. Um, we are currently translating our level one course for teachers into three more languages. It's available in English right now. And we just released our parent tutorial um, last Thursday. So what about about a week ago now? Um, that's available in 11 languages. And we have 10 more that will come out over the next uh, month or two. So we really lean into making things accessible for people through a simplicity of the e-learning, through kind of that asynchronous thing where you don't need to be in the room at the same time and doing it in your own language. And then when we do it in our own language, everything's in the language, everything. So the, the screen where you type your name in and get started, all of the content, the labels, the audio, we do subtitles on everything. So we actually had somebody the other day asking us if we would do sign language. And I said, uh, probably not because everything's already subtitled. So that, that kind of meets that need as well. Um, and the certificates even are multilingual. And so the idea is, that we want to take child protection training to people rather than asking them to come to us. And so really leaning into, like I said, languages, simplicity and accessibility, that, that's been the success story for us. Yeah. yeah. And I think, you know, if people can do it at their own time and also for schools, it's the cost, you know, bringing in, it's flying in a team in across the world to come and do a day and trying to find the time and you're competing against other things. It just seems far more seamless. And also the different languages. I think that's just so powerful. Talk, well, uh, so talk about this platform. Well, there's even more. Can I just add one more piece yeah, to that? Of course, this, please. It's not only that. So, so, Part of the reason that we leaned into e-learning was not only the platform and the and the accessibility, but think about that case that you just talked about. So we need to bring in somebody from the outside. Okay, so we know it's going to be multi. It's going to be likely monolingual. So that's a bit of a drawback. Further, we're going to do it on October fourth, two thousand twenty-three. That's great. We hired Dan on October fifth, two thousand twenty-three. <laughs> when is Dan going to get this requisite training? How is that available with a live person or a synchronized event? And so by doing it asynchronously, we can meet Dan's needs because he's he's got various language and, and instructional needs. 
but he can also do it before he even starts work at the school. So schools can authentically say to the community or to the accrediting agencies or whomever, everybody's everybody is trained in our school community because you don't you don't get to, to start until you completed the training. So that, that's another piece, that accessibility. And this was a big piece for us, John. I think, I think both of you will, will recognize this. You know, teachers start in August, generally, for, North, for the Northern Hemisphere. Um, cleaners don't. Cleaners start whenever there's a job available. So how do you provide something that will meet the needs, not only of those instructional requirements, but also the fact that, that they're just on different schedules, you know? And so that was another another big piece for us is making sure that the schools have the ability to have coverage regardless of what their unique circumstances are. Yeah. Yeah. And I think that's such a good point is so often everything is kind of the schedule of the teachers. Teachers come in August, we have orientation and everybody else kind of just falls through. And then the following year, these people show up as new, but they've been there a year and it seems out of context. Yeah. Yeah, that's that's really I think that's a really good point. And I think, you know, what's interesting as you're talking, I'm thinking, wow, this is not only for child safeguarding. This is just good practice for professional development and leveraging e-learning and asynchronous and synchronous learning. I mean, there's just so much there that people can build from. Yeah, we did find a challenge and, and you, you were asking the question, so I'll just kind of move forward with it. Um, we we had to build our own platform. You know, and, and John and you and I and Dan and you and I go way back on on all of these wonderful uses of technology and the learning management systems and all of that. And so, you know, you, you we've all kind of worked together on on best uses of like Google Classroom and things like that. So as we were designing this, we started going out and looking at learning management systems. And I would say to the learning management system providers, OK, here's what I need. I, I wanted to provide video. I want to have some basic structure for buttons. So no letters. I want I want um, you know like yellow triangles and blue circles and stuff like that, so that there's universal access, uh, and that's it. And I would get oh yes yes we can do that absolutely. And I said no 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 that's it. I don't want anything else. Well they have to register. No I don't want them to register. Well they have to go through these various systems. No I don't want that. So so my analogy is that when we're going out and looking at learning management systems again to the point you were making John about. This is a this is a group of learners that are typically overlooked when we come to support staff. Everybody was trying to sell me a Maserati and I needed a chair and four wheels. In fact, I didn't even put a break in until one of our customers said, hey, it'd be great if they could pause. So the way that ours works is that the school purchases the credits on the system. And then they go into our dashboard and they choose the course and the language. And when they choose the course and the language, they're given a code and it's a QR code or a URL. And then you share that QR code or URL with every single member of staff that speaks that language. So there's not a lot of there's not a lot for the school to do. When the when the individual scans that code, it takes them to a landing page in their language, and all they have to do is type their name in and press begin, and that's it. And the wow, system knows nice. about them. It knows what what um, organization. And then when they get into the course, not only are they getting information that's generic, but we allow the schools to give us reporting information specific to the school. So it makes it a more customized experience. But that only works when you strip everything down to give the best accessible experience to the learners. And not many people can do that. So educators can, can go through the hoops, no problem. But we have, I have functionally illiterate staff members in some of our Southeast Asian countries, and they've still been able to get through it. And so I, I find that a point of pride that we've we've made it truly accessible to everybody. 
Yeah, I love the pare down. I'm just thinking that could be useful for some educators too, you know? I yeah, mean, the, uh, yeah. that, just that, yeah. I think, you know, often, and I'm sure, Dan, you feel the same, this kind of all the bells and whistles that systems have sometimes feel overwhelming. Dan, you're on mute. Very sorry, guys. Uh, sort of late. Yeah, I, I, exactly, John. And I think people can overcomplicate things. Many schools, I was talking to a school today who just had insane overlap of systems and everything. And schools have a habit of doing that, especially when a new tech director comes in and they want to make their mark. It's a common situation. Yeah. yeah. And that's kind of our approach, too. So, you know, Dan, like you said, they've got all these overlapping systems. They require administration and all of that. Well, like we said, John, people don't get into education to do safeguarding and safeguarding training. So we can't really build a system that requires, you know, a PhD in our system to be able to go through it like you do with some of the student management systems, because they're not going to come back to our system for months and they don't want to. Right. We want to focus on other things. And so, so Dan, like you're saying, I, I like leaning into simplicity, clarity and, and don't add things on and don't do too much unless there's a very clear purpose that's not going to draw away from any of the core functionality. That's 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 my ethos. Yeah. So when you get these certificates, I mean, are there, do the local national uh, organizations and governments endorse that? How, how is it, you know, like if I get a certificate, I'm in Burma, and then I travel to South Africa and get a job in South Africa. Is this something that carries with me? And can I use this or do I have to go back periodically? So, yeah. Um, so we do two types of certificates. So for our awareness course, we do a digitally verifiable certificate. That has inform it has basically information about them and the course. There's like some reminder information. Um, we also use this one, this um, digital certificate, as a written reference of that reporting information we provided in the course. So you know, we say I, I'm reporting to Dan Taylor. He's the designated safeguarding lead. His number is you know plus one two three four five or whatever. We put that on the certificate so that folks have a written reference if they need to make a child protection report. That certificate is digital, so it can be shared, it can be emailed, um, it can be verified. We have a built-in verification system, so it can't be faked. And it is multilingual. So this, is, this was a big piece specifically coming out of our experiences with international schools. So like I said, we had a lot of um, Indonesian um, local speakers, so they need to get their certificate in, Indo in Indonesian. But what happens when NIASC or WASC or CIS come around? They, they don't know what that certificate says. So you can print out the certificate also in English. So that okay. universal piece of information will go from, from organization to organization, and the learner can keep it with them, right? They can take it when they move to another school or they take on another job. They can say, yeah, I've, I've got this. Here it is, and you can even verify it. For our teacher one, we leverage technology. And so what I mean by that is we put our certificates on the blockchain. So they're not only verifiable and shareable, but they're unassailable. You can't fake one of our, our teacher certificates. No, and you, out of interest, Matt, what platform are you using to put them on the blockchain? That's kind of that's interesting. Blockchain. Yeah, it's, that's, a, that's a good question. We used a third-party provider um, that sadly went out of business. Right. Um, and so, you know, <laughs> necessity is the mother of all invention, yeah. right? So we... Uh, we talked to them. We did some engineering. I have a wonderful dev team with a, an amazing intern. And it turns out that the blockchain technology that they used is built off of a, a GovTech approach here in Singapore. 
And so we recreated their chain using um, government technology. So we built it, we built it ourselves and it wasn't that complicated. So it's not on like an, an, I won't, I won't mention company names, but it's not on those, those main company names. We have our own owned chain that we built ourselves based on publicly available APIs and, and technology through the Singapore government. Um, okay. So that's been, that's been hugely powerful. And with that, again, you can verify it, you can put expirations on it, and you can share it. So our certificates are digitally shareable on CVs, LinkedIn, stuff like that. You can, you can share them wide and far. But because this is such critical compliance level training, it can't just be a one-off. And so our certificates are typically, not 100%, but are typically valid for two years. And there's a reason why it's two years. And we actually talked to the accrediting agencies and we went through best practices. If you get live child protection training at what's called a level one, which is like the baseline for educators. If you do it live with one of those trainers that John was speaking about before, typically your certification lasts for three years and then you need to redo it. Well, that's a little too long if you're doing asynchronous online training, right? It's just because it's not interactive, that, that doesn't work. But if we do it on an annual basis, you dilute the impact of that instruction. So that doesn't work either. So two years is the sweet spot for the learner, the instructional design, and for the costs for the school. The school cannot do this, this course every single year. Financially, it's not good for them. Um, it's not good for the logistics. So two years tends to be the sweet spot. And when they come back to our course after two years, we've made various enhancements and we've made changes. But they're now seeing the same course, which reactivates some of that learning. But it's two years later. So a lot of it's still fresh. And they get the nuances that they missed the first time. Because we always, you know, whenever you do training, you say something and it's got multiple meanings. They start getting that second meaning. So, um, yeah, so those certificates are hugely valuable. Everybody wants them. We're People share them left and right through our platform. And then they come back and do it again to stay current on their on their training. Excellent. I love the idea of the use of blockchain. You know, we, we've heard so much about it and I'm always surprised like university degrees or even some of the professional development that people do in schools aren't leveraging this blockchain technology because we know that, you know, it, it is just such a secure platform and very flexible and agile. So that's great to hear. Matt, you were an IT director. You, all three of us have known each other for a lot of years and we've done various projects here and there. Tell us how you suddenly, you know, you talked about child safety and safeguarding. How did this come about? And I know you worked with some other people and we were talking about some of the other people. Tell us a bit about your entrepreneur journey, because as Dan always likes, uh, you know, he loves the entrepreneur story. And I just think it's so interesting. And Dan, I don't know, jump in also. I'm just curious. Yeah, this is an interesting one too, isn't it, Dan? And I bet you get this too, where people want to hear more and more of the story. And so I, I did a presentation at a conference, I think in March, and I had this long deck set up to talk about the, the things that I have learned and the things I would do differently. And people really didn't care about that. They wanted to hear the story and they were engrossed in like, what was that journey of moving from somebody that worked in schools to somebody that's running their own company? Um, yeah, it, it's, it's similar, I think, to a lot of us where I was in Jakarta during the time of these, these incidents and I learned more about safeguarding and we saw that hole. And then I, I, I left Jakarta and I moved back to Singapore um, permanently and I was doing some consulting work 
Um, and we were, and I was looking for projects. And so a colleague of mine and I started having a conversation and we were talking about what are the holes that we could fill? And the conversation kind of led to asynchronous training and who you could do it for. And then a light bulb went off and we said, why not safeguarding? Why not this group of people that is not, is not really focused upon. And if we leverage the the e-learning correctly, and we do the instructional design and the script writing correctly, we can make this multilingual. And that's the gap. But as with anything, it was purely conjecture. It was purely hypothesis. And so we had to pressure test it. And so I went out to that my, my, my friend, Chris, the expert. I went to a colleague named Angelica Nieris, who, um, who has a lot of connections with schools. And then I just started talking to schools. And I just floated this idea. I said, what would what would you think if I had this? And the resounding response from everybody, everybody was, this is, this is, this is a need. This is a need across the board. Accrediting agencies, legal people were telling me, yeah, we need this. So we built out a proof of concept because I don't, I don't tend to leap before I look. And we built out a baseline version. We got some learners on it. Um, we shared it with, I think, 40 different people in these various organizations because, you know, just like you guys, I, we have these networks where we can really pressure test these ideas before we, we do them. And it was a resounding need. And so with that, I jumped in. I stopped taking a salary. I helped develop. I, I ran the team that developed the platform. I started doing all of this work in conjunction with these team members. And then we released it at the height of the pandemic in 2020. Wow. Yeah, I know. And the responses that we got at that point were confounding. Some people were saying, this is the perfect time. Nobody's working. I can have them do the training. Other people are saying, nobody's working. I can't have them do training. And then we just started adding more languages and sharing it out more and more. And it has become, it's just become just kind of a, a snowball running down the hill. So we've added more languages, we've added more courses based on what people need, all from that journey of being willing to take the knowledge that we have about schools, identifying a gap and using the technology as we all know how to do to fill that gap and then taking the leap and actually doing it. Um, and now I don't want this story to sound like it's everything has been perfect, but I'll tell you, even the downs and the ups and all of that has been an amazing part of the journey. So. Yeah. What, what advice would you give to to people working for a school who were looking to start doing consulting, either as a part time or as a full time? Like, what would you, someone thinking about that? What advice would you give? I think knowing your niche is important, right? Um, I find that a lot of well, I think knowing your niche is, is critical, so you know exactly what you have to say. Um, another piece, and you know, I, I think Dan, you probably have more experience with this than I do. Consultants have a belief that everybody wants to hire them. And what I found... You have that belief until you start doing it. Then, <laughs> then you have a belief that everybody should be hiring you. Everybody should be hiring. The problem yeah. is that consultants don't realize they have to go tell people that they should be hired. And yeah. so consulting work, from my experience, even my work now, you know, like I do product development, I do all of these various things. Business development is a majority of the job. You know, that's so 100 percent. i couldn't agree with that more it is right? and you know what i found is what i was actually talking to to ben who's in our team today about this like because you know there's some people i've spoken to a lot and then they've they've said to someone else oh, i didn't realize absolutely did that and i'm like i told you like 10 times but then you realize no one's listening to you because everyone's 
focused on, just like I'm focused on myself and you, Matt and John, you're focused on your thing. No one's thinking about you. You literally have to like shake them and say, I do this, I do this like a hundred times. And, you know, it comes, it can come across as pushy one in one in 20 times, but for, for the other 19 wouldn't even know you existed if you didn't do it, you know? That's right. And you have to go out there. And what I find is with a lot of consultants, they always start really well, right? They're telling yeah. people they want to consult. They get seven jobs. It's spectacular. That eighth job is the problem, right? That eighth job is when you start doing those things, Dan, that you're talking about. And it transcends more than that. And in fact, this is this is something that we're doing. So um, on our certificates, we put the organization name. So it shows that I've been working with, you know, the International School of whatever, but it's just words. We have just figured out a way to include the school logo inside the course. So it'll show up in the course, not only that, that reporting information, but now we can put the logos on the handouts and we can put yeah. the logo on the certificate. When I've started to mention that to schools, they honestly, I'll be on these calls and they'll go, really? You're going to have a certificate with my logo on it? And they're absolutely right. There is something visual in your face that makes it real. Same with consultants. You have to have that visual in their face. You give yeah. people an email with some words. Words, words are, are don't don't sink in very well. So yeah, it's that that's a big thing. You have to be ready for the business, not just the consulting. Yeah, definitely. I mean, I think John. I mean, you've probably seen this because you're you've, you're doing a few different entrepreneurial things. Like it's um, you know, you you could definitely get referrals, but even the referrals, that's a kind of sales. Even that's something something you have to yeah. focus on. It's yeah. legwork, right? Yeah. And and I think what's interesting that you said, Matt, and I, I've been involved with uh, a gentleman who's been a guest here, Oliver Page, who runs Nutcase. Mm -hmm. And, you know, he I, he's come and worked with me with kids. And he always says, you need to find a problem that nobody yet thinks is a problem and you have to come up with a solution. And that's really been interesting to hear that. And what you're saying is that actually nobody was doing child safeguarding at the international school level, which is kind of amazing to think there are these accreditation groups. And this issue is, you know, it's from the dawn of age. Children, unfortunately, have been mistreated. This is nothing new. But to think such a large organization, very loose, but the sense of international schools, that there was nothing at all. You know, and that's, just, I think, really interesting. And I think that's maybe you hit that nerve. People were like, damn, we need that. That's a great idea. And, uh, you know, that goes. And I think, you know, also a lot of work that Dan does is, is nobody's doing it. This whole idea of cybersecurity in schools and, and things like that, you know, that's just so important. So I think for educators, it's, you know, always think about, don't think about the obvious, think about the non-obvious, the thing that people haven't yet thought about maybe. Yeah. Which is first, better, cheaper, right? First, better, cheaper. If you can yeah. do something first, you can do it better or you can do it cheaper. That's where you're going to have. Your and hand. you know what? It doesn't even have to be original. It could just be original for a particular, particular market. Like, you know, I mean, there's a million people doing what we do for us public schools but not for international schools, you know, like, so that's, uh, I think that's also something to bear in mind. If you know international schools, that's probably your, you know, it probably things people are doing in the US and the UK that they're not, not doing for international schools. Yeah. Well, let me ask you, Dan, if I can ask a follow-up here, because yeah. one of the things that we've done really well is that we have focused on a market that very few people understand, you know, like you're talking about cybersecurity in the US and whatever, but just education in general, that what I'm finding is very few people understand that. And so we're doing yeah. child protection in an education environment, and then we're going to grow from that into other areas. But if I bring in 
you know, an expert from an accounting firm that, or, you know, an oil and gas person, they try and match their model of how a business works on education. And we know that just doesn't work. Yeah. And so when, you know, you guys asked the question about, about consultants and jumping into these entrepreneurial efforts, one of the things that teachers have above everything else is they understand education. They understand what a teacher actually needs. They understand how a school actually works and it yeah. doesn't match any other industry out there. So leveraging that, you know, Dan, I assume that's something that you're doing quite frequently is, is leveraging that knowledge you have about the industry to, to make stuff that actually works. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. I think, um, you know, like 13 years ago when I started this, my, my experience was in the enterprise IT world, you know, and then I got into education after that. So, um, yeah, yeah, 100%. Uh, yeah, I, yeah, I'm not sure if it was a question, but I agree with what you said. <laughs> it's like, I agree with it, yeah, I think it's so. Then what you do is you have a million conversations when you go to the Middle East or Asia or wherever you're traveling. You just meet people, and you're not really selling. You're like, hey, let's go and have a drink. Let's go and play a golf game. But you're really out there learning and talking to people, and I think that's really important is sometimes not to go for the sales pitch, but just have those contacts and those relationships. So you're kind of in the know and you know what the flow is. And I think that's so important. I think you do that really well, Dan, because you really have a sense of what it's like to be an IT director in an international school. Yeah, I think, well, I mean, I see you two online a lot. I think there's a lot to it, isn't it? You've, like, like Matt said, if you want to, Again, obviously, we'll get back to, to Matt's uh, child safeguarding, but I think just in terms of the advice for, for teachers, because we do offer people working for schools because we do get that quite a lot um you know you've, you've got to want to be talking to people all day like like you two are always online you're always talking i mean i've i've had with my calendar I, i've probably had 12 calls like this not counting this today and i've got another three later that's that's nothing special in a day and i'm still doing my regular work and looking after the kids in between it you know like i think if you if you want it to go full-time you've got to be realistic about you know if you become big you can build a team and somebody else can do that but in the beginning it's going to be you and it might be you for quite a while <laughs> Yeah. Matt, we're talking about safeguarding. We're talking about all these adults. What about kids? Are you doing anything so kids are better equipped to understand what's appropriate and not appropriate? So when we first started this, we said, we're going to focus on support staff and I'm never going to get into to working with um, safeguarding teachers. So then we built a teacher course. And then I said, you know what, I'm, we're never going to do people outside the employees. And, and then we just built a parent course. So I'm going to say to you on this podcast, we're never going to do anything related to student learning. <laughs> and, and so, you know, the challenge with student learning is that the variables are, are larger and different than they are with the adults. Generally, there's a consistency of some level of literacy and understanding of concepts because everybody is more or less um, developmentally the same when it comes to adults. With children... We have challenges. I can't say things to five-year-olds that I would say to eight-year-olds that I'd say to 12-year-olds that I'd say to 16-year-olds. So that's a challenge. Um, the language pieces become even more difficult when you're looking to do a, multi, a multilingual approach. And then finally, the curriculum. Because when you do curriculum for children, it needs to align to the curriculum experiences within the school. And so am I doing an IB-based curriculum? Am I doing an ENC? You know, are we trying to tie to some of the TOK things? So it's a it's a gigantic mountain that we have not approached yet. And I've said we will never do it. So, of course, we're already talking about it now. Um, but it, it just it's a very, very large thing to tackle. And we have a few other things in the interim we're looking to tackle, such as leadership. 
you know, I've talked about everybody that has direct connection to the children, but what about the board members or the owners or the senior leaders that have that fiduciary responsibility to put those things into place? So we're starting to do that. And how do you do that with like Vietnamese schools where they have an ownership group, but they don't speak English? Okay, well, we need to provide that. And so we're looking to do a top level approach now that we've kind of done the middle, and then we're going to probably have some discussions around around looking at the students. But there's a lot of variables there we need to address. Yeah, and I just think nowadays, hopefully kids are a little more savvy. But, you know, unfortunately, and we were referring to two events over the last 10 years, Dan, is that, you know, this trust, you know, I mean, I work in a primary school and the amount of trust and that kids give you and they respect and how you have such an immense responsibility as an educator. And I would say when I worked at LA Unified, I remember at graduate school, they told us never, and I was teaching kindergarten, they're like, never be in a room by yourself. If, if they're with another kid, make sure there's another adult, leave the door open. And this was in 92. This is quite a few years ago. And we got, a, especially being male early years teachers, there was a lot being shared and strategies and it was very explicit. It was kind of a non-negotiable. So, you know, I think I applaud that you are doing this and also to the childsafeguarding.com organization. I think this is so important and, you know, nothing's worse than a kid come to a school and then not feel safe. I just think that's Agreed. just awful. And, uh, you know, we're going to, we've had a wonderful hour and Matt, I want to thank you uh, for your time and also just always appreciate, you know, that entrepreneurship side, because I think many of our audience, many of the educators and we mostly I think, Dan, most often the people we have were educators and become entrepreneurs. It's kind of that's, that. a, that's a recurring theme of the podcast, definitely, <laughs> yeah. Yeah. which is great, which is great. But Matt, is there anything you would like to share with our leaders that listen to us and our educators and parents and the audience that we have? Any kind of thoughts or something to reflect upon as we wrap up this very rich conversation? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, obviously, I, I want to give a little plug and please go visit childsafeguarding.com. We, we've just revamped the website and there's information on all of our materials and you can contact us if you want. But really, the, the thing that I want I would like people to take away. We, we have kind of a, we have a tagline that we've, we've stuck with, and that is that everyone has a role to play. So every adult, whether they are a cleaner, whether they are a delivery driver or a volunteer or even a, a visitor has a role to play in child protection. And so as you're looking at your school and you're considering the adults that need training or the adults that need to be part of child protection programs, realize it's. And so don't don't exclude one not on campus very often or you know they rarely see kids every person has a role to play when it comes to child protection absolutely i can't agree more and i just want to remind uh our audience it's child protection child childsafeguarding.com and a fantastic website and you get a lot of information and then matt has been kind and uh we have show notes so do jump into those and get some of the resources matt thank you so much and really appreciate and when you have that kid course call us up we'll have a conversation absolutely thank you guys so much i've really enjoyed the conversation thank you thanks